Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. So this morning we're in uh, Ruth chapter 2, and Ruth is, a, like I said, a small book in the Old Testament. It's only four chapters long, and it exists after Judges. So if you go the first five books of the Bible, you have Joshua, then you have Judges. So it's right there. It's, it's, it's not hard to find if you know where to look for it, but it's easy to miss because it's so small. We looked at chapter one last week, and uh, where we pick up the story of Ruth is, is in the midst of loss, tremendous loss. Um, Ruth, uh, not Ruth's husband, but Naomi, who is the matriarch of the family, uh, has lost her husband. His name's Elimelech. And uh, I mentioned last week, say that three times fast. We just don't hear names like that today. But that was a good, strong Jewish name in the day. But in addition to losing her husband, she lost her two only sons. Some of you may be acquainted with Naomi's loss. You know what it's like to lose a husband or spouse, if you will. You know what it's like to lose children. Can't imagine the loss and the grief you must bear. But Naomi would have been one who had been acquainted with your grief and your sorrow. In addition to this, Naomi was left with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah began this long journey with Naomi back to their homeland because they were in the land of Moab at the time, or the nation of Moab, which was a pagan nation that worshiped multiple gods. Um, and they, they had gone there about 10 years prior because there was a drought in the land and there was a famine that had started in Jerusalem and thereabouts around there. So now the land has repaired itself. There's no more drought. There's no more famine. And in the midst of all this loss, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are making the track back to the hometown where they lived, which was Bethlehem. Now, she gets about a few miles down the road, Naomi, and realizes, I shouldn't take my two daughters-in-law back with me. They're Moabite women. They're not going to be welcomed in, in the land of Judah. Um, though we have laws uh, in the Old Testament that said you should treat a foreigner with kindness and hospitality and those kind of things, the Moabites were not a very well-liked people, especially to the Jewish people. And so if she were to take her two daughters-in-law back with her, they probably would not have been treated kindly. Now, Naomi's situation, too, she was going to have to fight for everything she, she could get because she didn't have heirs. And in that culture and in that time period, a woman like Ruth, or excuse me, like Naomi, would have been considered liminal. Do you remember me using the word last week? And liminal really just means homeless because she didn't have a husband, nor did she have sons to help take care of her. She was beyond childbearing years because she was older, <clears throat> so she couldn't have another son or another heir, if you will, to take care of her in her old age. Women like that in the Jewish culture basically would have to live off the land as best they knew how. So we come to chapter 2 
Uh, Well, let me get this. Naomi gets halfway down the road and realizes I need to send them back home because they can't suffer the plight that I have to suffer with me. So you guys go on back home. You'll find husbands, uh, good strong men at your own home somewhere that'll help take care of you. Go back to your father's house and, and, and you can be, uh, you're, young, you're young enough that you can re-wed and have children of your own. Orpah goes back, Ruth doesn't. And Ruth sacrifices everything to go with Naomi. She says, where you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. And your God will be my God. So Ruth basically says, I'm gonna give up everything. I'm probably not gonna remarry again. I'm just going to be with you. So what kind of act of loving kindness is that? That somebody says, I, do, I could have a future if I go back home, but I'm willing to sacrifice that so that I can be with you. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 2. They come back into the land of Bethlehem and Judah, and Naomi and Ruth find a place to stay in their homelessness, and women in that time period would have to glean in the fields. Does anybody know what the word glean means? It means this. It means that they could go behind the harvesters during a season of harvest and pick up the heads of grain that would fall to the ground. Or let me say, not even the heads, because the harvesters were really good. They would, they would cut the wheat or the barley or whatever grain was growing in the season, and they would bundle them up. And whatever loose kernels would fall to the ground, the homeless people, specifically the widows that were homeless, were allowed to come behind the harvesters in the field and pick up the individual grains. Also, the harvesters would not cut the corners of the field. So there'd be small triangles at the corner of each of the fields that would be left for gleaners to be able to take full heads of grain. At best, you might be able in a day's time to collect just kernel by kernel by kernel, maybe a pound of wheat or a pound of barley that might get you through a day or two. But you were at the mercy of the harvesters. Hopefully, you had a sloppy harvester that was leaving behind something for you. So Ruth and Naomi find themselves in this situation, and this is where we pick up the ongoing story of Ruth and Naomi today. In chapter two, starting with verse one, I'm reading from the version, the New Living Testament. Uh, The Pew Bibles are NIV, so they may read a little different, or the Bible you've brought may be a little different, but the one that's on the screen will be the one I'm reading from today. So it goes like this. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So we have a family connection here. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go out into the fields and or harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, daughter, go ahead. But see, let me stop there. It was a risky venture. Though they were allowed to do this, according to the law of Moses, they were allowed to go behind and glean in these fields and take up whatever grain was left. It was a risky venture because you had greedy people and greedy harvesters that didn't want anybody to have anything. And so they wouldn't quite live out the laws of the land. And if somebody came behind and began to pick up stuff, they could get beaten, they could get molested, they could get very hurt or driven off the land. And so when Ruth asked Naomi if she could go do this, Ruth is like, uh, all right, go ahead. 
I mean, what else do they have to do? What are they gonna, what are, how are they gonna eat? So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem to greet the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. Will the Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. This tells you something of the character of Boaz because he was a God-fearing man. Now you think, well, all Jews were God-fearing people, right? No. If you read anything about the Old Testament, you could see that there were times that they did not like God, they did not love God, they did not believe in their God specifically. There were times in the Old Testament where you could see that they basically prostituted themselves to other gods and they would pass their children through the fires of other gods. What does that mean? There were gods like Molech and Baal who would uh, demand a sacrifice of your firstborn child on the fire. And that's what they were giving themselves over to. So there were people, even in Ruth and Naomi's time in the land of Judah and all of that, that did not faithfully live out in a relationship with God, that didn't obey the laws of God, that didn't do what was necessary to, to be connected with God in any way, form, or fashion. But Boaz seems to be one of those God-fearing men, one who lives in accordance not only with the law of Moses, but in a relationship with God. And so he calls out to his harvesters, the Lord be with you. And they understand the benevolence of, of, of Boaz because they respond in kind, will the Lord bless you? And the foreman, uh, so what, what happens here? Boaz asks his foreman, who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, well, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if I could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been uh, hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes to rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather your grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field that they're harvesting and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, please help yourself to the water that they've drawn from the well. This was not customary. We'll get into that in just a moment. Ruth fell at his feet and she thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. She's basically reminded him, you remember where I came from, right? You know my culture and I know that your culture despises my culture. Why are you treating me so kindly? Boaz says, yeah, I know. I know who you are, I know where you're from, but I also know about everything that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, Psalm 91, good place to look at for that. And under, and under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. At mealtime, it says, 
Boaz called to her, come over here, help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in our sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all that she wanted, still had some left over. Still very uncustomary in that culture to allow a homeless person to come and eat at your table. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. What are sheaves? The sheaves of grain, the long stalks, these sheaves that they bundled together. Let her gather from those. It's okay. She's not stealing. I want her to be able to do that. And pull out some of the heads of barley from the bundles and even drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up. Don't... Don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And, in, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and, and showed it to her mother-in-law, Ruth. Or, uh, mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where in the world did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. I mean, because she brought back a sizable amount. There's no way that she could have gathered this in one day just by gleaning alone. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. Because she realizes Naomi could not have done that on her own. Somebody had to let her do that. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field that she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today was named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He's showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Pause. You know what a family redeemer is? A kinsman redeemer, some of your versions of scripture may say. When there was a woman who was a widow who had no one to care for her, it would be, she would be put to the next line of family. A family redeemer would come and take her under his wing and care for her as his own. If he was able to, he would marry her and bring her into his home. And Naomi realizes in this moment, it's not by coincidence, but the Lord has blessed not only them, but he's blessing him Boaz in the process. How in the world is it that you ended up in his fields? How is it that that he, our family redeemer, our next of kin, is actually treating you with kindness? This is this is amazing. Then Ruth said, What's more? Boaz even told me to come back and to stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is complete. Naomi, he didn't just let me come today, but he says, come back every day until the end of the harvest. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. 
Then she continued to work with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. So not only barley, but wheat as well. She continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. She didn't say, hey, things are going pretty well for me. You know, I can probably find, I can probably sell some of this grain. I can start earning a living on my own. I can maybe find a place to to live or somebody to take me under their wing. Uh, You know, I'll bring you a bag of wheat or a bag of barley ever so often. She could have left her, but it's significant because the author of Ruth decides to put in here, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. She never gave up on her promise. She stuck to what she promised she would do. Here's the key point this morning, at least from this passage of scripture, is that true kindness makes sacrifices in accordance with the needs of others. We too often look at what we can do for ourselves, how we can benefit from any interaction. How often is it that you come across a person who's willing to say, I'm gonna do this not for my benefit, but for the benefit of others? It's rare, especially in our culture, or let's just say in our world for that matter, to find somebody who's willing to do something with no strings attached, to make a sacrifice so that others can benefit from us without having to give and return to us. But too often we find people that say, yeah, oh sure, I'll come help you, and then I'll cash in you know, that help later on. Well, you help me, I'll help you, right? I mean, we we get into these give and take relationships. But what would the world look like if we gave without expectation of anything in return? Huh? Well, you say the banks would close, (laughs) the the institution. Well, but let's just say there was no need for banks. There was no need for any of that. But we lived in such a way that we gave to those who were in need until they got on their feet. We didn't give to those who were too lazy and weren't willing to work. But we gave to those that said, I don't want to be where I am and I'm willing to get out of this. I just need help. Okay, I'll walk with you. But I don't expect anything in return. You don't have to pay me back. There's no interest attached. I want to help. This is what's going on in the book of Ruth. This is what Ruth did for Naomi, what Naomi was trying to do for Ruth and Orpah. You guys don't have to go with me. Go back home. Start your lives over again. This is now what we're finding out. Boaz is saying, come on. Now, you're you're saying, well, he's a rich man. He could spare some more because we get caught up in this political mumbo-jumbo. But he's doing this not because he has to, but because he wants to. He wants to not just take pity on her and look down on her. He's pulling her at his table so that she can eat with him as equals. Hey, come on over here. Dip your bread in the sour wine we have. Come on, enjoy a meal with us. What about the kindness of Boaz toward Ruth? What what do we learn from this this morning? We realize something about the grace of God in this relationship to this perfect stranger. 
Ruth, who in chapter one pleaded to go to Judah with Naomi, learned something of significance in the promise she made to make Naomi's God her God. See, what, what Ruth is realizing when she tells Naomi, I will, be where you, I will be where you are, I'll go where you go, I'll do what you do, and I'll make your God my God. And now she's going into a territory, into a place where these people are total strangers, she's probably expecting the worst, and she goes out one day by herself leaving Naomi behind to glean in a stranger's field because she knows the customs of the land that allow her to do that, but she's taking her life into her own hands because she knows that she's a Moabite woman and she's probably not gonna be looked on highly and she may in fact be driven out or abused or whipped or beat. Something may happen to her. But she's taking the risk and she comes upon this field, and this man by the name of Boaz treats her not only with kindness, but he goes above and beyond. He goes the extra mile. He has her sit at his table. He actually has his harvesters leave extra grain for her. And what we find is that he didn't just leave her a pound to two pounds. The scripture, when you break it down, says it left her at uh, an epha, or uh, one of the, it's a system of measurement. And when you translated in today's measurements, it was 40 to 50 pounds of wheat. 40 to 50 pounds of wheat. So she's beating out this grain. She's taking the heads of grain, beating them out, getting the chaff off of it, and putting it in this basket that's 40 and 50 pounds. This is a muscular woman. She can handle the 40 or 50 pounds and carry it back. You know how long that would feed them? It wouldn't feed them for a couple days. If just between the two, Naomi and Ruth, it would feed them for at least a month, if not more. She's realizing something not only of Boaz, but of the kindness of Naomi's God that she's accepted as her God that is willing to help and provide for her and bring her comfort in a strange and foreign land as a stranger in that land. God's given her a a sense of hope because she realizes not everybody in the world is a jerk. What does it take to do what Boaz did. What does it take to actually say, I don't know who this lady is, I've heard of her, I know Naomi because Elimelech, her husband who is now dead, is one of my relatives, but you know, it's like knowing this person because of this person, because of that person, because of this person. You know what I'm saying? So it's a distant kind of knowledge of somebody. But he realizes she's been pretty nice to my mother-in-law and she didn't need to be. Or she's been pretty nice to one of my relation or one of my kinsmen, which she didn't need to be. What does it take to do what Boaz did? I mean, when you're when you're not when you're doing well and you're blessed by the work you do, when things seem to be going your way and you're and you're so busy with day-to-day endeavors, what would it take for you to stop and notice someone else? When you're moving from this place to that place and you've got this appointment and that appointment, what does it take for you to stop in your tracks and notice the seemingly insignificant? People gleaned in the fields all the time. Why did Boaz notice her? Was she more beautiful than all the other ladies? We aren't told that. 
Was she, was she greater than all the ladies? We don't have anything to tell us that she stood heads above the rest, except for the fact he knew what she had done for Naomi. That's really all we have to go on. Sadly, in our culture today, let's flash forward from Ruth's time to our time. Sadly, what it takes us to stop in our culture is the outrageous, the grotesque, the morbid, the tragic, and just the plain weird. I'm on, we have Netflix, we have Hulu, we have Amazon Prime. I go on there and I'm intrigued by these shows, these reality shows that are just based on weird stuff. For whatever reason, we're attracted to the weird. Whenever you drive by a scene of an accident, what do you do? Oh my gosh, what's going on there? You rubberneck and it slows traffic down, right? Some people are ambulance chasers. They like to go and find out where the accident is so they can get some weird excitement out of this adrenaline rush of finding out what's going on. And if you're one of those, I don't mean to offend you. But what does it take for us to notice something in the world? Does it have to be so off the wall crazy? There's a story in the New Testament where Jesus is with his disciples and he notices another widow. So Ruth is a widow. Boaz notices Ruth when it's seemingly she's insignificant. But Jesus notices a widow that's seemingly insignificant in Mark chapter 12. Listen to this. Verse 41, Jesus sat down. He's near the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped their money in. Many rich people put in large amounts of money. Then the poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. They call these mites. And a mite is basically, if you take one of our current pennies and you cut it in two, you have basically two mites. That's what she had to her, to her, in her possession. This widow dropped these two small coins in. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I'll tell you the truth. This poor widow is given more than all the others who are making contributions for they give only a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything that she has to live on. I love the correlation of this because Ruth, she could have gone back home. She could have remarried. She may have married into wealth and could have lived her life in comfort for the rest of her days in Moab. Around her family, around where she grew up. But she said, you know what? I'm going to give everything because I love Naomi. I can't bear to see her go. I don't know where she's going and if she's going to be provided for there so I'm going to go and help her. And this widow in Mark chapter 12, nobody noticed but Jesus. Oh, they may have noticed. They may say, get out of the way, lady. I got bag. Could you move? I got these bags of money to drop in there. Or they may have turned up their noses to her. We don't know. It's pure speculation at this point. But what we do know is that Jesus says, oh, whoa, whoa, guys, watch. You see this lady over here? <laughs> Oh my gosh, watch, do you see what she just did? She dropped in two small coins. That's all she had. That's 100% of what she had. 
See, all the wealthy people around her were giving just a slim portion of the great wealth they had. But this lady, she's given everything. See, this is, you know what the world sees oftentimes about the church? You know why we get a bad rap? It's because they don't see us living any differently than they live. And if you're here exploring today, and you really don't consider yourself a part of the church, but you may have been invited, somebody promised you a meal after the service, or whatever the case may be, I'm sorry if the church has been squirrely to you or been a joke. The sad truth is there's not many Ruths in our culture anymore that are living out of sacrifice, that are willing to put 100% in, not be judgmental, but be loving, and to speak the truth in love about the things that the culture says are okay, and to live out what we say we believe. But they don't see us living out what we say we believe. They see us saying we're one thing and doing quite the opposite. That's why we get the bad rap for being called hypocritical. Were you saying, Brandon, I can't be perfect all the time? You've not been, well, yes, you have been called to be perfect as he is perfect. But do you know what that means? When Peter says that in 2 Peter, 1 and 2 Peter, you should be perfect as God is perfect. You should be holy as God is holy. You know what he means by that? Do you know what the context of that means? Holy means to be set apart. Are you set apart? Do you know what it means to be set apart? See, in the temple, there were these things that were holy, the the menorah and the incense and uh, the golden emblems and things that they would use in the temple were used and set apart for a specific purpose of worship. And when we've been called to be holy as he's holy and perfect as he is perfect, it means that we are to be complete and set apart. We shouldn't be double-minded. We shouldn't be tossed about like the waves or the wind are. We are to be rock solid in a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. And when we screw up at times, we should be able to say, you know what? God, forgive me. And we should press on. And we should help others to see, yes, I've messed up a time or two. I wish it weren't the case, but there are times that I fall. I stumble. The difference in me, though, is that I get up and I continue to move in the direction of Christ. I don't give up and walk away. So Ruth, though not a perfect lady, though coming from a pagan background, though she may have worshipped other gods at one time, she makes a sacrifice and says, I'm going to make your God my God. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I'm going to make that sacrifice because I love you and I care for you, and I'm not going to leave you alone. And then she comes upon a man named Boaz who didn't even have to show her a second glance, who gives her what she didn't even deserve in that culture. What about the kindness of God toward Naomi and Ruth? The second part of this, real quick. Naomi, in the first chapter, what was her attitude? She comes back into Bethlehem, and all the ladies of the town in Bethlehem are like, hey, Naomi's back, and they got excited. They hadn't seen her for nearly a decade at this point, and they're like, yes, she's come back home. We've missed you. And what's her response? She doesn't tell them to shut up in so many words. She says, oh, don't, don't call me Naomi. 
Call me Mara. The Lord has held up his fist against me. He's taken everything from me. I, I don't want you to even consider me as a blessed woman. I'm a bitter woman. That's what Mara means. And in chapter two, as Ruth comes home with all of this grain, she realizes, how in the world did you get this? Something clicks in her head and you hear her saying, may God bless the man. This God that she said had her fist against her, she's now saying, may God bless. Why? Because she realized God hasn't forgotten her in the midst of her sorrow, in the midst of her loss. She realizes that it's not by coincidence that Ruth happened upon Boaz's field, which was her family redeemer. Have you felt rejected and punished by God because of life circumstances? Have you ever felt dejected and alone in your frustration and sorrow because of uh, the difficulties you face? Have you ever felt hopeless and afraid because situations in your life have left you beaten and battered and bruised mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Have you, have you left God or have you never found your way to God? because you see the world around you as it rages and there's evil and all of this crap in the world that happens and you say, if there is a God, then he must know about all of this and if he's not stopping it, then he's not a good God and he doesn't really love. I've seen so many people walk away from the faith that were on fire at one time but then they come upon a difficulty in life and they pray, God, take this from me. And because he didn't take the situation from them, they said, he must not be good. He must not be real. So I'm done. We are never promised in scripture a God that will get us out of every circumstance and difficulty. But we are promised that he will go there with us. I've been doing this lately with the Psalm 23 from David. In one of the most difficult times of his life, he's in the wilderness running from a king who wants to kill him. And in the wilderness, as he's hiding out, he writes this six-verse psalm that we use at funerals all the time. But it's more a psalm of life than it is of death. In one of the verses, right in the middle, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? He goes on to say, because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Right? This is what we experience. But the problem is we want God to, to evacuate us from the situation or the circumstance. And when he doesn't, we get bitter like Naomi. We get frustrated like Naomi. We feel that God's against us if he does exist at all. I was talking to my class this morning that I teach before, before this. And, um, and one of the best things uh, that, that have, that's helped to illustrate this to me is I'm a father of four kids, ranging in the ages of 16 to 7. 
been through most stages and haven't been through the young adult years yet, and I hear they're a great fun time. So we'll figure that out when I get there. But here's what I know. As a parent who loves my kids, would take a bullet for my kids, there's nothing they can do to make me love them any less. I know that if I'm constantly bailing them out of difficult situations, what's going to happen? Exactly. They're not going to learn. Because life is a teacher. Difficulties are a teacher that when we press through them and when we press on, we become stronger, don't we? Some of us become calloused, and that's what happens when you press on through situations without a relationship with God. You can become calloused. Even if you have a relationship with God, if it's not, if it's not great, you can become calloused too and very bitter like Naomi. But those that make it through this, that come out on the other side of this with a stronger faith are the ones that say, God, I don't like this, but I know you're there. I know you haven't left me, even though it feels like you have. I know you're right there with me through this. I know, according to Isaiah, that you are acquainted with my griefs, that you are acquainted with my sorrows. I know that you walked a road to Calvary, and you even asked, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer the pain and the separation on the cross, but not my will, your will be done. It's the ones who come through this, who are able to stand as a testimony of God's love and God's grace, are the ones that know that even though I walk through death's dark valley, I don't have to fear, because God's with me. See, here's the problem, we think God leaves us. God, if you're a believer in Christ, God doesn't leave you, it's us who leaves him. And then we blame God for all these sorts of things. We blame God for everything that goes wrong in our life instead of accepting responsibility for our own decisions that have led us oftentimes to the places we shouldn't be or we find out we really don't want to be. And sometimes God says, listen, I, I'm with you where you are. And I will walk with you through where you are, but I'm not going to change your circumstances right now. Because I need you to grow. I need you to be strengthened. I need you to find your faith in me rather than in what you think you can do for yourself. Naomi gets this experience of God in Ruth chapter 2 just probably weeks after they've gotten back. Actually, probably days, because uh, Ruth hadn't gone out to glean yet. So days after they've gotten back, she goes and gleans in a field of a family redeemer who will find out in the next two weeks even went further than giving them extra grain. We're going to see a story of redemption through great loss, much like the story of Job in the Old Testament too where it seems like God's hand is against Job. And Job even comes to the place of complaining to God, where are you? Why have you left me? And then God gently reminds him toward the end, where were you, Job, when I scooped out the basins of the oceans? Where were you when I put the star stars in the sky? W were you there 
when I form the mountains that touch the sky, created the plants and animals? Where were you, Job? See, there's so much going on that you don't realize. There's a bigger picture that you can't see that I can, and I need you to trust me in the midst of these deep, dark valleys. I haven't forgotten you. I'm there with you. I'm pressing on with you. But if you stop, there's nothing I can do because I'm not going to force you to do what I want you to do. I want you to come along. But remember, we talked about God's love. God's love is selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. It's never forceful. God is not going to force your hand. He's not going to make you do something you don't want to do. We call this free will. But true love allows free will. If I forced my wife to love me, what kind of love is that? It's called abuse. If I forced her to be with me. See, God doesn't want to force us to be with him. He doesn't want to force us to love him. He gently woos us into a relationship with him. Some of us, it takes longer than others. Some of us are so stubborn and hard-hearted that he slowly chips away with a chisel at the hardness of our hearts. But we have a choice. Naomi had a choice. Ruth had a choice. And their choices were of sacrifice and loving kindness. I'm going to close with this today because I think it's a powerful illustration of this. Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Mike Iaconelli? By the confusion in your faces, I'm guessing not. One of my favorite authors, he passed away several years ago, but he wrote a book called Messy Spirituality. If you've not read it, I commend you to read it. Messy Spirituality, Mike Iaconelli. If you want to know the spelling of his last name, come see me after service. But he tells this true story, and I close with this today, about a young man and his wife who had been trying to have a child for about five years and had exhausted all their options. They'd gone the medical route, they'd done the natural stuff, they'd gone every which way, and they still couldn't have a child. So childlessness, it, it began to hammer away at both of them. Difficult questions consumed them. How could two healthy lovers of God find themselves childless with so many women who never thought about God were having unwanted babies left and right? Five years of God's silence began to take its toll on this couple. And then a miracle happened. The man's wife became pregnant. Within a few months, the news got even better. She was carrying twins. The landscape of this couple's faith changed radically. Gone were their questions. God was good. God was visible. Now the five years of waiting made sense. God had been teaching them to wait and now was giving them more than they ever asked for. Life was good. Life made sense. Then the unraveling began. During a routine checkup, the doctor discovered some serious problems. One of the babies had already died, and the other had little chance of surviving. And if it did live, it would probably suffer severe disabilities. Abortion was the only way out, the doctor said. The bottom dropped out of this man and woman's life. The husband felt devastated. He felt angry, frustrated, hurt, confused, and hopelessly lost in grief. Yet again, how could God do this? 
What kind of God gives you a gift and then destroys it? This man was hanging on to his faith by a very thin piece of thread. In fact, he would say later that his faith was hanging on to him. He had long since let go of his faith in God at that point. Friends at his church noted his deep exhaustion, and they strongly encouraged him to try to pick up the pieces of his life. He, he accompanied some friends on a week of silent retreat, but he made it clear that he didn't want to be there, and he didn't, didn't want to try to hide his anger. One of the spiritual exercises during the weekend of the retreat was a nature walk. The spiritual director instructed us to look for places in nature where we could see God. Made this man so angry. I hate God. I don't want God. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. This is stupid, he said. As far as I'm concerned, God is not anywhere to be found. And I'm not going to waste an hour trying to find God in nature. I've been wasting the last few months trying to find God in my own life. And I've received no response from him. He made his mind up that he would refuse to participate in the nature walk. Oh, sure, he would go for a walk. But he would look like he was participating. He would sabotage the experience by finding a long stairway of cement where he would walk, gazing only at the gray cement. He wouldn't look at any plants. He would spend an hour in quiet rebellion, staring at the bleak, smooth, gray cement. After the exercise, he returned to a small group, and he talked about his experience. I was about halfway up the walkway, he says, walking very slowly, lost in my anger and resentment toward God, and then the tears began. I wasn't conscious of my tears until my mind caught up with my heart because there in the cracks of the cement, the entire walkway was covered with cracks. And I realized my tears weren't because of the cracks. They were because of what was in the cracks. Every dead blasted crack had a flower. Somehow in the midst of the gray and lifeless cement, life Life had made its way through the impenetrable rock and mortar of the sidewalk. He's alive. He surprised me with his flowers. He found a way to show me hope in the midst of despair. His love and his care found me. What does it take for God to reach you? What did it take for God to reach all of us? Jesus was like that beautiful, perfect flower growing in a lifeless gray cement of our hardened and broken world. He came at a time where death ruled the day under the Roman government, where life, we think life was dismissive, is, is dismissed today. It was even worse then. God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice to break through the decay of this world brought us hope and salvation. God's kindness and tender mercy offers us hope in the midst of the most trying times of our lives, as well as in times of abundance and joy.
as our worship team comes forward to close us out today, I, I guess I, I want to leave you with this and, and ask you, if you find yourself in a difficult season of life, if you're struggling with faith, or if you don't even have a faith at all, and you think this, this religious Christianity thing is, is a joke, then I guess what I'm asking or challenging you to do is press in and not give up. I'm asking you to really thoroughly, critically think through the evidence that truly does demand a verdict. Though God may seem unkind, is it God's unkindness or is it the world's brutality through sin and death? Because God's beauty breaks through the dark and blossoms in this great, colorful abundance of faith. You see, Jesus says the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Not God, the thief. We call him Satan, the devil, the enemy, the accuser. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy your faith, your hope, your joy. But Jesus says, I have come. He, Jesus, has come to give us life abundantly. Abundant life can happen in the worst times of life if you're given over to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And yes, you are good and holy and righteous. Even when we feel you've left us alone, remind us in the midst of the darkest moments of our life, our questions, our doubts, that you're with us. Fill us with hope and joy in spite of our circumstances and situations. Fill us with a tremendous amount of love and kindness toward others and toward you. Help us to come through on the other side of the dark valleys we find ourselves wandering through so that we can also be a comfort to others in their deepest, darkest moments. Remind us of the road to Calvary that was a dark valley for Jesus. The nails through his hands and his feet, the thorns on his head, and the spear thrust through his side. Remind us that he's a man that's gone through a dark valley too. And it's through him that we can have hope and freedom from sin and death. It's in his name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.